I uh, know many of you looked at the bulletin uh, the, and uh, noticed that today's topic was uh, supposed to be uh, on uh, Christian economics or the Christian view of economics. Um, we thought it was clever when we set the calendar up. About this time, it would be text time. And I, I, told, I told Jim, I said, you know, I heard this talk on uh, Christian views of e- economics and it's text time. Maybe this would be a good topic. So it was planned way out in advance. But um, Andrew gave a talk the other week and uh, suddenly I got a little tug at my heartstrings that said, you're not going to talk about economics, are you? And I said, huh, that's pretty boring. <laughs> so today's topic's coming a little bit from the inspiration from uh, Andrew and his talk, uh, a little bit about me, I guess, because I'm kind of a confused guy, as you know from being in this class with me. I ask a lot of wild questions. Um, but I wanted to take you through what was tugging at my heart. And these are, this is really kind of a review. Uh, nothing that I'm going to give you today is really original. This is a review of what this class has kind of done, um, really going back to uh, probably Joanne's class in apologetics, where we, we started looking at, at some of the more theology and some of that type of thing. So um, bear with me. Um, ask questions. There's two parts to this. You're going to listen to me drone for about 15, 20 minutes, and then you're going to listen to a real theologian talk uh, on, a, on a DVD. Yeah. So I can unlock the key on my billfold now that you're not going to talk about economics? Yeah. <laughs> Safe. Safe. That's right on my next list. So unless somebody is really inspired, what I would like to do is have you pray with me. And I would like to use Psalm 19 as our prayer this morning. So in that spirit... The words of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. Those words are more precious than gold, than pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the comb. By them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then will I be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Well, as I said, I'm not, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a paid teacher. Like you, I come to this class seeking, and I've been inspired, as I've told some other of you before, by these two passages of Scripture, and my hope today is that what we talk about, think about, meditate on, does help build you up in your maturity. I congratulate you for coming today and continuing to meet together and encouraging one another, because that's my goal, too, is to encourage you. I guess, I guess I'd like to borrow from the secular world here a little bit. I, I love talk radio. Uh, it drives my wife crazy. Every time we get in the car, I have to flip the music, and she'll tell you that's, that's pretty much true. But one of the guys that really whips it up, so to speak, in this community is Mike Trevisano on WKNR. And 
Mike's got this little gravelly voice, and he's a little bit overweight, and I can't really do it, but he, he'll sit there, and with a very cynical tone of voice, he'll say, I truly, truly live in a world anymore that I just don't understand. And he'll use that to kind of whip his audience and his listeners up, and then he'll go into his tie rant, and then he'll take phone calls. But, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good segue. It's a pretty good format. I, I oftentimes have to agree with Mike Trevisano. I kind of feel that way, too. Uh, I live in a world like that. And for the next few minutes, I want you to think that way with me because that's what I'm trying to, trying to get across. Andrew talked a little bit about some of our foundations and uh, our founding fathers. And, and the, uh, he, he pointed out that uh, some of the uh, original letters and, and articles that go into our government really have very little Christian background. And I, I took these off the website that Andrew gave me uh, that uh, President Washington said, and you know, I, I was struck again when I read through, and it was about a six-page document I took, but this one, the first one really hit me. Uh, when, when the words is not in any really kind of belted me between the eyes, uh, and here we are as Christians trying to live under this government, in this, in this community, in this world with each other. And then you know, I've heard John Guybe say m multiple times, you know, you can live a life and be a really nice person, do really good things and not be a Christian. And when I saw this comment, again, the second one, that, you know, just simply to be a good citizen and to live by your own opinion as to what your religion or maybe even your God is, and then we live in this world that we don't truly understand and wonder why. But this is, this is some of our governmental principles, if you will. Another one from Thomas Jefferson was, you know, I think we would all agree that it's nice to be peaceful and not to be coercive, uh, but Thomas Jefferson sort of played the God card, the Jesus card, if you will. He, he kind of came up and said, eh, God's not that way, you know, that way. He doesn't force himself on us. Why should we force ourselves on each other? And yet we believe that the Christian way of living and the Christian way of believing is right. Truly a world we don't understand. And then we go, to we go to Scripture, and sometimes we get the same confused little face that you saw on that first slide with my name on it. Uh, we read about, it's really God's will for us to live under the government. It's really God's will that we do that with the understanding that he is behind our government, behind our leaders. Uh, but how often do we, in our own way, rebel? I didn't vote for that guy. I don't like that guy. Those darn <coughs> Democrats, those darn Republicans, those darn independents made this up, and I don't go that way. And again, we feel confused by the world we live in. When I read this passage which is dangerous, I know, to say this, but we'll talk about that some more too. But when I read this passage, it seems to me that God wants us to be decisive. You're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. Which is to say, you need to decide. And then we look at a character like Saul, who was very decisive. Very decisive. And very demeaning to the Christians, the followers of the way. And yet God 
saw his decisiveness and chose him to lead the Gentiles. He changed his heart, but nonetheless, he loved decisiveness. And that example, and we say, so should we live in peace and accept and let everyone's religion and every good fellow's belief be the way, or should we stick to our guns? Is it just Christianity? Is it just Jesus? I am the, I am the way, the only way. I get confused by the world I live in when I read my scriptures, too. So I take it more personally. And if you look at Matthew, this is when the disciples questioned Jesus, and they wanted to know why he spoke in parables. And he went back to um, Isaiah, and, and he explained that, you know, you can hear and not understand and see, and you can't, you can't trust your senses until your heart is changed. But, you know, you can't, you can't go through life and rely on your empirical senses and experiences to find the truth and, and, and to, to end your confusion. Matthew 27 was when Pilate's wife implored him to uh, let Jesus go. She was bothered all day by a dream. How many of us would trust our dreams to give us truth? You'll hear in the sermon today, if you didn't go to early church, the scripture reading Ananias, again dealing with Paul. Ananias was told in the dream, go find Saul. You'll find him. Tell him the Lord needs you. He's chosen you. Would you... Being a Christian, go talk to Saul and say, hey, I had a dream. You're going to have a change in heart. You're going to become a Christian today. Your eyes are going to be open. I know you're blind. Hey, it's going to work. Just, uh, I don't know if I'd go around that guy. He's been pretty rough. I've seen him in the back alleys, what he's done to my brother Christians. Would you trust a dream to walk into that bee's nest? The world's confusing. Well, one of the things that we've learned in this class, and this is just kind of review, is, is you know, borrowing again from John's, Guybe's comment, you know, over time, space, history. We've learned about this, the eras of, uh, in history and, and why um, people's attitudes maybe add to this confusion. And, you know, God reveals himself over time, and it's hard for us to be patient. It's hard for us to live uh, patiently and, and wait for things to be revealed to us. We're used to that sudden gratification. We want, we want it now, but God's purpose is to, re, God's way is to reveal himself over time. And then society evolves. We change. We, the, the society we live in changes. And this, this, the, the concepts of pre-modern, modern and post-modern are kind of laid out there for you with some time frames. And, you know, for, in the beginning of history, to the truth what really predominated cultural thinking was truth received predominantly from God. We accept, the, the people of that time accepted authority. Uh, yeah, I, this is a new machine, and this is the first time I've seen it. I'm not sure where the focus is. 
Is this the audio? Is this there you go. It's a busy slide, I'm sorry. I wanted to put it on one. I tried it in a couple. It didn't work out. But again, the, 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 the pre-modern times, for me, are much easier to understand because then all society is willing to accept authority and truth that predominantly comes from God. But the thing that was difficult about that time was that authority and truth came through the receiving of words and images. And then as you go through history, like John likes to say, the big truth, the capital T, and then the small t, and then the whatever, um, people gradually evolve into themselves and relying on their intuition and their senses to determine how they live, to determine their truth, to their worldview, their reference point becomes themselves. And when everybody has a, is their own authority in themselves, which is the world we live in now, it makes what we are trying to accomplish, building each other up, encouraging each other to the fullness, very difficult because everybody is not on the same page, so to speak. And so we're confused by history. We're confused by time. Again, our goal difficult in postmodern times to come to a complete understanding. This is kind of a summary of what, how important this concept is and the fact that in a worldview we have a center authority and the things around us then are these outer circles and it makes, it makes things much easier to, to uh, organize. It makes gets people more on the same page. And if you go down that column on the left, all those things can basically be summarized by that statement at the bottom that in, in this worldview, things are either done by God or reflect God's nature. Again, that's the pre-modern era and the pre-modern time. But this is the time we live in. This spreadsheet of hajmaj of different concepts who Jesus is, from a man to, well, maybe God, but not a real God, or a man, but not a real man. And then when you get down the column on the right, that whole column says, from grace on top, everything else is something you do. You know, the Christian religion is really the only one that accepts the grace. So we work from our salvation, where the remainder are working for their salvation. And we work from our salvation if we accept the season we just came from, the Easter season, the Easter event, if we, if we accept the grace. So really, Christianity is based on revelation. It's difficult for us, even at our very best, it's difficult for us because God reveals himself over time. And while there's knowledge, the real key is the relationship. You can believe in the knowledge, the, the analogy of believing that a parachute works, but you have to put it on. You can believe in the knowledge, but you've got to accept the relationship, and that's where even the best of us sometimes you know, struggle. And as we struggle, we kind of do that that thing that was in Revelation where we're kind of one day we're really good on the relationship and we're really into it 
But the next day we sort of get luke we get lukewarm or cold and we go back to our own things, our own concepts like Thomas Jefferson talked about where we choose our own religions, we we, we choose our own little aspects and fall out of the relationship. And then we get into the other problems. Well, maybe, maybe the word submit is the best word you use there for me because that, pli- that falls into my next slide. So with so Jim's great segue, he explained it much better than I, but again, I'll use the, the, the primary question then in governing that relationship that we're talking about is submission. And where we, where we fall into the hot, cold thing is either, we, and I should have probably, I just realized, I should have probably flipped those colors uh, on my screen, this is red and green, but uh, we either submit to his revelation and are patient with the process and accept that, or we submit to our own imagination. And, and the, the problems then with that is in our imagination, we wind up with you know, idol- idols and, and religions that we've created rather than the truth uh, revealed through the Holy Spirit. This was another set of terms that, that uh, I saw and read and, and came to mind, but this psychosocial theology of man's imagination when we amass all of these theses and traditions and propositions against submitting in faith to, uh, to the divine will. And we wind up looking bruised like the little guy on the, on the right top. Well, I promised you you would get to hear somebody that was uh, much more authoritative than I. Uh, this was part of one of the things I thought about when Andrew was talking, believe it or not, because I had listened to this uh, once before. It'll just take me a second to cue this up because... While you're looking for that, too bad you imagine that. Diligent to children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise up, you shall bind them for a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them upon the posts of your house and on thy gates, 
And he goes on to say that you should be so absorbed in a study of the things of God that you talk about these things when you sit down, when you stand up, when you go to bed, when you're at the table. Tie them on your forehead, tie them on your wrist, put them on your doorposts. In a word, God is very much concerned that we are diligent in the study of his word. But it's not enough to speak of duty. With that duty comes a sacred privilege. Our Lord told us that he came that we might have life. And we were also told that the word of God is life. So God requires this study from us, not just because he's a stern taskmaster like Pharaoh that won't give us any straw for our bricks, but he requires it so that we can live, so we can experience the fullness of life that God has ordained and designed for each one of us. But let us move then to a consideration of the principles that are important to become masters of the Word of God. Okay, so this is just a brief commercial here, but really my intent was for, more information for us to understand truth and to keep studying in this class. Or contact this us is to inspire us to keep encouraging each other and keep studying this, this next segment. Or write P.O. Box 54 7500 Orlando, Florida, 32854. The following message is a presentation of Ligonier Ministries, home of the radio program, Renewing Your Mind, with R.C. Sproul. Have you ever had anybody, after you've recited a passage from Scripture or given your views on what you thought meaning of a particular passage of scripture was. Have you ever had anybody after that situation to sort of look at you and dismiss all of your statements by one simple statement? They look at you and they say, well, that's your interpretation. I've certainly had that done to me on many occasions and I've often asked myself, what do people mean when they say that? That's your interpretation. We're going to look at that today and some of the ramifications of it after we open with prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you not only have spoken to us, set down your word for us in writing, but that that word is available to us, that in the privacy of our own homes, we can read for ourselves the truth that you have given to your church. We thank you for this in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, that's just your interpretation. That's the dismissal I've heard many times, and I suspect you have too from people. And I, as I asked a moment ago, what do people have in mind when they say, that's your interpretation? I thought about it, and I thought, well, maybe they're just pointing out the obvious. I'm the one who just gave the interpretation of the Scripture. But surely they wouldn't be wasting everybody's time by just pointing out something that everybody knew already, that it was my interpretation. There must be more to it than that. And maybe what it is is a veiled rebuttal by getting to the bottom line as quickly as possible to refute 
what I've just said by a simple little equation, the simplest of all kinds of syllogism, the idea that's unspoken would be this. Everything that R.C. Sproul interprets is wrong. Since R.C. Sproul interpreted this passage, the only conclusion we can come to is what? It is wrong. But I don't think people are being that unkind or that nasty when they say that's your interpretation and just by putting it at your doorstep, therefore, saying that it's wrong because obviously anything that you touch would turn to error. I doubt that. But I'll tell you what terrifies me. I'm afraid that so often what people mean when they dismiss us lightly by that's your interpretation is well, that's your interpretation. You read it one way. I look at it another way. And the third party over here reads it still a third way. And these three may be mutually exclusive. They may contradict each other. But that's all right. Because the Bible is a matter of individual, subjective interpretation. Whatever it means to you is fine. Like I say, if that's what people have in mind, it terrifies me for this reason. Because then it becomes a slogan for what we call subjectivism, where the meaning of the Word of God becomes tied to who's ever interpreting. That's what Luther was so afraid of, that the Bible might become a wax nose that would be shaped and formed and molded according to the pride and the prejudice of whoever was studying it and whoever was reading it. If we let that happen, dear friends, then the Bible's authority collapses. Its truth has been relativized. And the Word of God is slain. But you say, wait a minute, R.C., you mentioned in the first lecture that a very important principle coming out of the Protestant Reformation was the principle of the perspicuity, that is, the clarity of the Bible. Wasn't there even a more basic principle in the Reformation, namely the principle and the right of private interpretation of the Bible? Yes, indeed. The principle of private interpretation was one of the most precious legacies that we have from the Protestant Reformation. It's a principle, incidentally, that we tend to take for granted. If you are sitting in your home, reading the Bible in your own language, you may assume that that's a freedom and a privilege that is easily achieved. But the blood of the martyrs has flown through the streets of Europe to make that possible. Because in the 16th century, one of the most important things that Martin Luther did when the Reformation was started was to translate the Bible into the vernacular, into the German language, which was the first time it had been accomplished. And that created a hue and cry and protest throughout the Roman Catholic Church that brought all of the power of the church to bear to stop the printing presses from releasing copies of the Bible in native languages. And some Protestants look at that today and they say, how evil must Rome have been to have sought to suppress the publication of the Bible in native languages. But ladies and gentlemen, it's not all that simple. 
You go back and you read the history and you see that men and women were tortured, they were torn apart on the rack, they were burned at the stake for daring to translate the Bible into English or into German or some other language. And you say, how ghastly must the Roman church have been? Not so. Not so. Let's take a little exercise in best case analysis. Why do you suppose the Roman church took such a strong stand against translating the Bible into the languages so that the people could read it on their own. Well, if we were just looking at this from a prejudicial viewpoint, we would say, well, maybe that was the great cover-up scandal of all time, that they didn't want the people to know how far the church had departed from the biblical truth. I don't think that was the main reason at all. As the princes of the Roman Catholic Church said, if we put the Bible in the hands of unskilled laymen, without the magisterium of the church, without the teaching office of the church to govern and guide and protect people from erroneous understandings of the scripture, we're going to open a floodgate of iniquity. And they even predicted that uh, that would cause a multitude of different Christian denominations, each one claiming the Bible as the truth. In 1960, there were listed in the United States of America in the Directory of Religion 2,000 different Protestant denominations. I don't know how many there are now. But in 1960, 2,000 of them. There was the Church of the Ladder up to Heaven number one, and the Church of the Ladder up to Heaven number two, which split from the Church of the Ladder up to Heaven number one over an issue and dispute of biblical interpretation. And all of these different denominations claim the Scripture as their source of truth. That's what Rome was afraid of. Rome was afraid that the body of Christ would be fragmented and fractured and that heresy would run wild if you gave people the right of private interpretation and of translating the Bible into their own native language. They were pretty accurate in their forecasting and they said, we will use corporal punishment, physical force, torture chambers, which were commonplace in that day, if necessary, will harm every joint of the human body if we can preserve people's souls from eternal torment and hell. If you want to understand the Inquisition, you have to understand that it took place at a time when people actually believed in hell and, it'll, and that souls could go there, which is not where many of the churches are today. But I'm not here to praise Rome. I stand with Luther. I agree in the principle of private interpretation and of translating the Bible into the vernacular. But I want to stress that Rome was not just being obstreperous when she cautioned against the dangers of private interpretation. It could indeed loose a floodgate of iniquity, and in many cases it did unleash a floodgate of iniquity. And Luther himself agonized over this point. He said, I know what people who are unskilled and untrained and irresponsible can do with the Bible if they rip it out of its context, if they distort the meaning of Scripture. But again, for the sake of that simple, clear message that the whole world could hear the gospel of Christ that is so desperately needed, he said, if this opens up a floodgate of iniquity, so let it be. So vital is the truth of the gospel for the nations.
but it's a price that we've had to pay. And when you get everybody disagreeing with everybody else, and you want to keep peace, one way to do it is to embrace subjectivism and relativism and say, well, it's all relative anyway. It doesn't really matter. You interpret your way, you interpret it your way, and if they clash, if they conflict, that's okay. Peace, peace. That's Neville Chamberlain's approach to biblical truth. Peace may be accomplished for a season that way. But truth is slain in the streets. The first principle of biblical interpretation is this. And this principle may scandalize you. It may infuriate you. As soon as you hear it come from my lips, I just beg for a minute's indulgence, ask you to hear me out, and be careful now so that we understand what we're saying and that you'll follow the distinctions because I'm going to make a very fine distinction here in a moment. Here's the principle. There is only one correct meaning of any biblical text. Let me say it again. Principle number one. There is only one correct meaning of any biblical text text. He's a monomaniac. I can hear them saying it. Yeah, he's got this one-wayism, this narrow, rigid, brittle mentality. No, what I'm saying is there's only one correct meaning, but there may be a multitude of applications, and the significance of a passage may be virtually beyond bounds. Let me see if I can tell a story that will illustrate what I'm talking about. I know of a professor, I believe he's in Dallas Seminary, who works with young men who are involved in Christian education and pastoral training. And in the first day of his course, he gives them an assignment. He said, tomorrow I want you to go and I want you to take this one verse of Scripture and he assigns the one verse, one sentence of Scripture. He said, I want you to write down on a piece of paper 50 things that you learned from this one verse of Scripture. And there is this groan that exudes throughout the classroom. And the students go back, and they're muttering under their breath, and they get out their lists, and, and they try to find out one or two or three things that they learned from this verse. Maybe they can quickly rush down to six or seven, and then they're stymied, and they go and they knock on their neighbor's door, and they say, what have you discovered in this verse that I haven't found? And they start comparing notes, and pretty soon the whole dormitory's up there trying to come up with 50 things that they learn from Scripture, and they're going on at three and four in the morning, finding the next morning they come into class, they're bleary-eyed, and they turn in their assignments where they turn in 50 things that they learned from one sentence of Holy Scripture. And the professor said, good job, that's terrific. He said, my assignment for tomorrow is find 50 more. An invaluable lesson is conveyed that the Bible is a treasury of truth. We have little books that help us in writing and in literature and English. We call them thesaurus. Rogets thesaurus, for example. And the word thesaurus means a treasury. Well, the ultimate thesaurus is scripture. And there is a treasury of significance and application in every single verse. Each verse is pregnant with significance for our lives. And the professor could have gone on every day till next Tuesday and the Tuesday after that, assigning 50 more and 50 more. And the most brilliant student would not have exhausted 
the possible significances and possible applications from each of those verses. But dear friends, there's only one correct meaning. Truth is not contradictory. The Word of God is consistent. It functions in harmony. And if I interpret a portion of Scripture in a way that contradicts how you interpret that portion of Scripture, we know something at the outset that's very important, and that is that one of us, at least, is wrong. If your interpretation contradicts mine, one of us, at least, is wrong. We may both be wrong, and a third party might come down and say a pox on both of your houses and show us where we both made a mistake. And we both should change our minds. We both can be wrong. One of us might be wrong, and one of us might be right. But if they are contradictory, they cannot both be right. Why? What's the working principle? The working principle here is the truth is not contradictory. Now, it used to be, if I would make a statement like that in a classroom, people would just say, well, of course, truth isn't contradictory. That's certainly true. We don't have to labor that point. I can't do it anymore. We're living in a culture that has gone so far to embrace relativism that there are people who actually believe that truth, real truth, can be contradictory. I think of a well-known theologian who made the statement earlier on in this century that not only can truth be contradictory, but he said real truth, ultimate truth, high and holy theological truth is often contradictory because it is so high, so lofty, so marvelous that it goes beyond our human capacity for logic and reason. And the divine truth not only may be contradictory. It often is. In fact, he went so far in rhapsodizing and celebrating this feature of Christianity as to say that the contradiction is the very hallmark of truth. Now, if all that theologian wanted to do was to point out that there is much truth in Scripture that is too high and holy for our rational categories to comprehend, if all he was trying to say is that sometimes God's ways are so mysterious to us that we cannot put them in a box and dissect them and analyze them logically, or that we could not create out of the basis of our own human intellect the riches of divine truth, if that's all he meant to say, then who would demur? But he said more than that. You see, it's one thing to say that, that the truth of Christ goes beyond reason, which it certainly does, but it's another thing to say that it goes against it. Let's look at the idea that contradiction is the hallmark of truth. A contradiction is not just an irony or a twist in meaning or even a paradox, which is an apparent contradiction that under closer scrutiny yields its resolution. We're talking about real contradiction, you see, where both ends mutually exclude the other one. There is a God, there is no God. Those two statements are contradictory. They cannot both be true. 
I've had a woman say to me on one occasion, oh yes, if you believe in God and you find it meaningful in your life to believe in God, then for you, God is true. I don't believe in God and God's not meaningful to me, so for me, there is no God. I say, wait a minute, we're not talking about the same thing. I said, the God that I'm talking about, that I'm affirming, is a God who exists whether you believe in him or not, or whether I believe in him or not. And that if there is no such God, all my praying, all my singing, all my preaching is not going to conjure him up. And if there is such a God, your disbelief cannot destroy him. We're talking about objective truth, not subjective preferences. Not what you want to be true, or what works for you, or what makes you feel good. But you see, that's the kind of culture we're living in today. That tells us that whatever feels good for me is true, or what works for me is true, without a regard to reality, whether or not there really is someone out there apart from me. All right, now, let's go back. The contradiction is the hallmark of truth. Let's apply it to the opening chapters of the Bible. God says to his creation, Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, you will die. Now, let's translate that just for a second into logic. If you eat, you will die. If a then B will inevitably follow. A few minutes later, Satan comes, and in his serpentine seduction, he comes to the creatures and he says to them, did God say you can't eat and all of that? And then Satan goes on to say, you will not die, but you will become as gods. God said, if you eat, you die. Satan says, if you eat, you will not die. That is a direct contradiction. Not just a mystery, not just a paradox, that's a contradiction. Now let's analyze it. If contradiction is the hallmark of truth, then Adam's thinking, he's a sharp thinker. He doesn't have to work through all the problems of the fall that muddle the head that we do. Adam's pristine pure, he's very sharp, he's very bright, he understands reasoning very acutely. And so he says, hmm. God says, if A, then B. Satan says, if A, then not B. That's a contradiction. That's a contradiction. Adam recognizes the contradiction. But then he's working on the theologian's principle that the contradiction is the hallmark of the truth. What would his irresistible conclusion be? If contradiction is the hallmark of the truth, then he's going to reason like this. This is a contradiction that Satan has uttered. The contradiction is the hallmark of the truth. That means what Satan is saying must be a hallmark of the truth. He must be representing the truth. If God is truth, Satan is representative, I can go ahead and eat. In that case, the failure to eat of the tree would have been a sin. And the fall would not have been a fall. It would have been a great leap forward in human history. You see, dear friends, without a clear-cut understanding of a contradiction, there is no human way to discern the difference between Christ and Antichrist between godliness and ungodliness, between righteousness and unrighteousness, between truth and falsehood. Biblically, the contradiction is not the hallmark of the truth. It is the hallmark of the lie. That's why, even as uncomfortable as we become when we disagree, because we want peace, we want harmony, we want fellowship, when we're dealing with the Word of God, we have to understand that when those disagreements come, if we really are understanding each other and that there really does exist a difference of opinion, somebody's wrong. And let's not take the cheap way out by short-circuiting the problem at the expense of the integrity of God. 
doesn't speak with a forked tongue. His word is truth. It is not contradiction. It may not be relativized. There is only one accurate, correct meaning of Scripture. Many applications, many nuances of significance, but one correct meaning. So it's important to understand that the principle of private interpretation is not a principle upon which is to be established subjectivism or relativism. That was not clearly understood even in the 16th century. After Luther sat down his principle of private interpretation, and remember the circumstances of that where he got in trouble with the Roman Catholic Church over the issue of justification by faith alone, and he got in debates, and, and they said, well, Martin, how can you disagree with what the church council back here said? And he said, well, church councils can make mistakes. I'm trying to read what Paul says here, and it seems to me that Paul is saying justification by faith alone. And the princes of the church said, yes, Luther, it seems to you that Paul is teaching justification by faith alone, but the church has declared here that that's not what he was teaching. And Luther said, well, maybe the church made a mistake. The church made a mistake. A church council make a mistake? How can a church council make a mistake? Luther said, well, they're human beings just like us. They're not infallible. Well, look here, the Pope has... And Luther said, well, maybe the Pope can err too. And they say, Luther, how arrogant that you would set yourself up against church and council. And you remember what Luther said when he was called upon the recant? He said, unless I am convinced by sacred scripture or by evident reason, I can't recant because my mind, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. He said, in a final analysis, you know, I have to go by what I understand the Bible to say. At that moment, you see, the right of private interpretation was born in the church. Luther challenged the church's exclusive right to interpret the scripture infallibly. The church responded to that in the Counter-Reformation and at the Council of Trent. It says, it said, no man has any right to distort the scriptures. Amen. We agree with the Roman Catholic Church 100%. Luther said, we have the right to interpret it differently from how the church has, but we never have the right to distort it. That is to say, the right of private interpretation carries with it the responsibility of correct interpretation. The right of private interpretation carries with it the responsibility of correct interpretation. Sure, I can study the Bible on my own, and I can interpret it on my own, and it is theoretically possible that I can understand it in a way that everybody else in the church has missed for 2,000 years. But that's very unlikely. That's very unlikely. That's why it's wise to consult the interpretation of the church, to, to consult the best commentaries, to consult what other minds have garnered, because it's very possible that I can learn from others. Luther did that, but it was as he studied the great giants of the past, Augustine and others. Augustine was telling him what he was rereading again in the, in the 16th century that somehow got lost in between. So it wasn't that Luther just on his own, out of the blue, invented justification by faith alone. But we should be humble enough as we come to the text of Scripture to seek the mind of the church, to seek the mind of the scholars, to seek the mind of the commentaries, lest we become guilty of a kind of private interpretation that turns the Bible into the waxed nose. 
The difference is this. We have two technical terms in biblical studies that we need to learn. One is exegesis. The other is eisegesis. They both come from Greek words. Ex, we see it on the exit sign. We see it in a lot of words. Ex means out of or from. The science of exegesis is coming to the text and drawing out of the text, ex, out of the text, what is actually in the text. Isogesis, E-I-S, comes from the Greek word eis, which means into. Isogesis is when I come to the text and read into the text something that isn't there at all. That's what distorts scripture. Reading into the text something that isn't there. Or even drawing out of the text something that is not legitimately drawn from the text. But we have to be careful to learn how to read what's there and how to handle what's there. And as I say, as this course goes along, we're going to study concrete practical rules that will help us guard ourselves from eisegesis and make us more skilled at exegesis that we can honor the integrity of the Word of God. Interesting, I, I know as a result of this class, five years ago I wouldn't have appreciated this talk the way I do now. Um, in part due to studying with you and, and all the wonderful things that have happened in this class, I understand this better. My confusion talk in the beginning was the background for this, and I was amazed that as I listened to this, all those things kept coming to my head, and I was able to pull them out as a result of our, study, our studies here. So again, I hope this has been further encouragement for you. I hope it builds you up. And if nothing else, wasn't that great when he used that word obstreperous, the Roman Catholic Church? Somebody else could probably pronounce it right. I think that was my word for the day, obstreperous. Any comments? So we've got probably just five minutes here. Jack? Two things that were not There's 12 segments in this class. This is a course that, he, that, that I have. This is just uh, lesson two. So we, we've just got a snapshot, but certainly that, that does get talked about later in this course, but you're absolutely right. The thing that bothers me is, you know, at the end he says consult with, uh, with other theologians exactly the same thing. And it's very difficult to amalgamate what is the real idea out of those expert theologians. That's the problem for me. I don't know which one. I'm a concrete scientist. I want the answer. I don't want 
try to fiddle with a whole bunch of uh, things coming in from the side. And so this stuff will always frustrate me, but I've learned to deal with the frustration. And that's part of what I talked about earlier, you know. And then he challenges it to the point that he, he says there is only one interpretation. I think he holds us to a very high standard. And it just adds to that frustration. But that's why I wanted to, I mean, I have a lot of respect for this, for Dr. Spool, but it really puts us at a, a level of responsibility to keep pursuing and not just simply walking away from what, we've, what we feel. Roger, Randy. All theologies are man-made. Because they're man-made, they're contaminated by original sin. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, get, I have a real problem. I said, obviously, the Church of England didn't have the truth, and that's why we're here in this country. And so it's, it's so difficult to say, okay, what is the truth? and uh, where all of the other denominations have determined what they believe the truth is or the interpretation of the truth. So here in the United States, uh, we're, we are a, a spin-off because we didn't believe that the English church was preaching the truth. Well, but that's being somewhat arrogant in saying that we brought it to the United States. It goes back to whether we do this peacefully and we let every man be his own decider or whether or not we met to coercion or... I think Sproul's point is when he makes the declaration that there is only one correct interpretation, <clears throat> he might have expanded that to say God's intention with every line of Scripture conveys only one ultimate truth, one ultimate truthful interpretation. Sproul didn't say that there are humans walking around the earth that have captured perfectly that interpretation. I think Sproul himself, in humility, would, would say that quite the contrary. We, we, because of our humanness, and as Roger said, because of original sin, we have polluted the interpretations with our own hopes, desires, temporal pursuits, whatever you want to list in that, that group of fallacies and faults that we all bear, but that there is only one correct 
element of truth in in each of any, uh, in any scripture. I think that's Sproul's distinction, the fine point that he makes. So it's very interesting to note he is an associate pastor at St. Andrew's Chapel, which is in Sanford, Florida. History and identity of this church. St. Andrew's was founded in 1997 as an independent congregation in the Reformed tradition. As such, St. Andrew's is not affiliated with a particular denomination. That is not to say, however, that we are non-denominational or interdenominational. On the contrary, St. Andrew's is an independent congregation on account of our desire to remain steadfast in Reformed tradition without the influence of denominational governance. Independent. Independent. Interesting. Yeah, it is. So not only are there 2,000 denominations, how many hundreds, thousands of churches are there that are not denominational? Yes. So. Many. Roger has another point, and we need to get off to church. The problem with the 2,000 denominations that he mentioned in 1960, each one says they are separate from the others because they have the correct interpretation of Scripture. Okay, so then you have to think about C.S. Lewis, and he says, just come into the Great Hall. Come in, meaning just be a mere Christian. So then when you get into the Great Hall, pick a room to go in, which is the denomination, a place that you can express your faith, but first look to God. First see Jesus as the Christ. Uh, This uh, reminded me, got me back into Worcester College about 50 years ago, and we had religion for Two for a whole uh, two whole semesters, and one of the things I came out of there w- with is that I did not trust uh, Bible studies by lay people. I wanted to have uh, somebody that really knew what they were talking about—a minister, a theologian, something or other like that—or I wasn't going to go. And that that still was part of me until we started until I started coming to the Sunday school class and hearing people who didn't know what they were talking about and then now I'm I'm okay <laughs> Roger's, Roger's got one more coming I don't want to frame Rogers. I'm just wondering, that statement, it runs totally counter to what we're hearing from the Christian world today, that we were founded upon the Christian faith. Yeah, it's a mis- is it a misunderstanding? Yeah, I, I know. That's what I, that was part of the whole gig in the beginning of the confusion that I experienced, and I meant for everybody to feel it, and your comment is perfect. I... I just in closing, thank you. Just in closing, I, I think 
I think one of the hardest things and, and one of the things that touched at my heart was this comment of, of submission to governments and where we see it elsewhere about, uh, you know, we're, in, in some of the scriptures we're told as slaves you should submit to your master and relationships, husband and wife, to submit to each other and sometimes that's taken poorly but this idea of submission and the, the whole idea of patience and time and, and things getting um, revealed over time and as we go today if you, you know just my thought one thought I would, I would like you to go with is be patient on, on the idea of submission and believe that good things are planned for you this, is, this goes with what Jack was saying about uh, and, and Jim about faith believe that good things are there and when you don't understand your sufferings, when you don't understand why you feel like you're being made to submit, why you're being forced to be away from your own tuitions, your own beliefs, your own self, you know, trust in the fact that it's the mind of God we're seeking. And then if you go back and look at those scriptures, almost every one of them will imply implicitly or say explicitly that you should have the mind of Christ as a slave, do your best and be respectful to your master. You're living out in the mind of Christ and submitting to government. You're doing the same thing. And, and uh, I think it's something that, I, that came out of all this for me as I prepared this. And um, next year, uh, Pam and I, I believe, are going to be um, spearing up the committee of uh, one or two or three or four that plans Westminster. If anyone um, gets inspired to give a talk, please, please contact me if there's things you would like to share. Um, we'll hold the calendar and we'll be more than happy to work you into it. Uh, and again, continue to encourage each other. Keep coming uh, so we continue to build ourselves up. You only said, you only said one thing in here, Dave. And that is that we need to submit to our government. You first have to have respect for your government before you can submit to it. Can I just add one thing? Today, the gospel, if you read a little bit further, where after he has shared, he said, feed my sheep and tend my sheep, and then he tells Peter how he's going to die. And then Peter says, well, what about him? Pointing to John. And Jesus' answer to Peter is, what is it to you what I call John to? You follow me, Peter. Look at me. What is it to you what happens with him? And that's kind of what we're saying here is we have to learn to look at Jesus. And that's our response, exactly what you're saying. We have to. Have a blessed day.